There are many birds that bask in the sunshine along the Georgia coast. Shorebirds, but sometimes we call them water birds. They graze along the water's edge. Their long necks and their long graceful legs, and also their ability to be spot on with their aim, to land perfectly upon whatever they've been searching for. But there is one bird with its long black legs and its pointed black bill that grazes the salt marshes, plunging along with its bright yellow feet. It has shaggy plumes and white fluffy feathers that makes it really a delight to see. That is, if you can catch this shy bird, which calls Georgia home all year round. Now, its elegance has given it a spot on the U.S. Mint's commemorative quarter. And on this episode, we tell the story of the snowy egret. It's quarter miles travel, where the adventure begins when you reach into your pocket. There's a story behind every quarter design, a story that can take you on an adventure of your own. From one-of-a-kind landmarks to hometown heroes, start your journey with Anita, one quarter mile at a time. Life is meant to be. Island, Georgia's largest barrier island at 16 miles long and three miles at its widest, and just miles from the Florida state line, is featured on the U.S. Mint's commemorative quarter. Considered to be one of the jewels of the barrier islands dotting the Georgia shore, it is one of the favorite places for the snowy egret to call home. It's no wonder that the U.S. Mint would feature this magnificent bird on the quarter. The design shows the snowy egret walking along the salt marsh, which can be found many times on Cumberland Island. On this episode, I tell the story of the snowy egret with the help of Pauline Wentworth, National Park Service interpreter at the Cumberland National Seashore. She is a wealth of information and has interesting facts about this wonderful bird. I start by asking her to tell us What is an egret, and what's the difference between the various shorebirds that you'll find here in Georgia? The difference between herons and egrets are both water birds, uh, or a family of water birds, and so you will find them along freshwater as well as saltwater areas. Both of them have very long legs, very long necks, and actually fairly long beaks, but there are some differences. A heron typically will have colored plumage, whereas normally egrets will have just white other than a small change during breeding. Egrets also will have mainly black legs, which makes it a little bit easier to identify them between herons and egrets. Uh, They can be fairly good-sized birds, medium to to big is how they're described. So um, egrets generally are about three feet tall or so. And there's several different species that we actually have here along the coast of Georgia. We have great egrets, the snowy egrets that we're mainly talking about, reddish, as well as cattle egrets. So they're fairly easy to see along the wetlands 
um, that we have along the rivers and along the mud flats, which is really nice. But what you want to look at for an egret is not only the white coloration and the legs, but also their movements. They're pretty cool with their hunting because they actually are stabbers. And so you'll see them standing very, very still and they look kind of very statuesque. And then all of a sudden they'll just jab at whatever they're looking for. So they're pretty cool birds to watch overall. Pauline mentioned the mudflats and the marshes, and I wanted to know a little bit more about the salt marshes because that's what's featured on the U.S. Mint's commemorative quarter. The salt marsh is an area that has the waters fluctuate and change about every six and a half hours. Mm -hmm. It has an area that would be covered with salt water for as much as eight hours a day, and so there's very specific plants called Spartina that will live only in that area and it's kind of a monoculture the only plant that lives there because it's the only one that's adapted for that inundation at the same time when the tide goes out then you have an area that has a great fluctuation of temperature it's now exposed to this the air to the sun and so it can be very hot and very dry and so the animals move in and out of here uh you have the changes of the water coming and going and so it's kind of almost like the lifeblood of the island because that marsh protects a lot of individuals that will eventually become food for us, whether it's fish or crabs or shrimp. It also has nutrients that are brought in. It helps to build up the island. It's always going to be on the protected side of the island because it's a very fragile environment, very small particles of soil in there um, that form something called pluff mud. Pluff mud's really cool because it has a very stinky rotten egg odor to it. But yeah. at the same time, that means that all those nutrients are in there and they're being utilized by those plants that are there and by the animals that are in there as well. So it supports a lot of life on the island, not just for the animals that are there, but also the ones that come and go around there as that tide fluctuates. Pauline did mention that the snowy egrets way of eating is to put their sights on what they like to eat watch it, and then stab it and eat it. But I also wonder, do they do any grazing? And exactly what do they like to eat? They'll stir up a lot of stuff in the mud. um, And they've got a pretty varied diet overall. Um, They will eat everything from crabs to fish, insects, small reptiles, snails, frogs. So it just depends on where they're hunting. And so it can be, like I said, the stabbing, but it can be stirring up. And you'll see them sometimes running after stuff, too. So grazing around through there being kind of opportunistic at the same time while they're hunting. We have brackish water coming in between the St. Mary's River draining part of the Okefenokee with fresh and then the ocean water coming in. We've got a mixture of stuff. So it depends on what the tide is as to what they may find, but they have a wide variety, crayfish, frogs, worms from the freshwater stuff. And then from the brackish or salty water, you will get some fish, some crabs. Uh, There's a wide variety of crabs out there, insects that are hanging around along the marsh edge as well as some small reptiles that might come and go and snails that hang out along the grasses. So they've got a pretty good wide variety that they can rely on and that allows them to be fairly successful in their environment. Well, it sounds like not only is it fascinating to watch them as they graze and stab and eat, but also to see their colorful feet. They have yellow feet. So I asked Pauline to tell us a little bit about why they have those yellow feet and how that's different from other egrets. 
Yes. So that's one of the cool things and the easiest things that you can use to identify the snowies from all the other types of egrets. I always say that they have snowshoes on. So in addition to the black legs that are characteristic of all the egrets, when they lift their feet, you will see those bright yellow feet. Um, and so, uh, you know, it does look kind of like they have snowshoes on, but that makes them very easy to distinguish from the others. Now, if they're standing there and not moving, that makes it a little bit more difficult. But if you're patient, you will be able to see those. Although their plumes and feathers are snowy white, there is a little bit of variance in their coloring, and this happens during their breeding season. So I wanted to have Pauline to tell us a little bit about the breeding season and exactly how their plumes and feathers change colors a little bit. Typically, they're going to be mostly white until breeding season, which will be in the spring, of course. You're going to get a little bit more fancy plumage on their heads, and you will see kind of a yellowish buff coloring around their head and um, eye area, and that indicates they are in their breeding plumage. But other than that, they're pretty much white year-round. And how long is the breeding season? Usually it's going to be a typical bird season from, um, they'll start probably going into breeding plumage about the end of March, early April here, because we do warm up pretty quickly. And they may stay in that until about the end of May or early June. Yeah, so, you know, it just depends on, I guess, how successful they are with their um, mating aspects of it, too. <laughs> and tell us about the mating. So they are what we call colonial nesters using areas that we refer to as rookeries, which is basically taking advantage of a crowd. They um, offer areas that are having a lot of these other birds, and it could be different species as well, but the idea is that you have a lot of eyes watching around there, and so if there's any predators coming close or any danger, then there'll be a lot of them seeing it, and there's a better chance of being able to survive because of that early um, initial um, watchfulness. So they will eventually build a nest out of twigs, which doesn't sound very comfortable to me, but apparently they know what they're doing. Um, this will be, of course, in trees near wetlands, such as the marshes or ponds. And the nice thing is around here where we have alligators, there's kind of a, a neat relationship in the sense that the alligators help to protect these rookeries by keeping predators away, such as the raccoons that could climb the trees and such. But unfortunately, the bad news is, is that if some of those babies do fall out and the alligators will also have their lunch. So it's kind of a, an interesting relationship there. Um, it's kind of their payment, I would say. Typically, they say they have about three to four eggs, and the chicks, once they hatch out, will actually fledge or get out of the nest in about two to three weeks. So it's a pretty quick nesting time period. Um, one of the odd things that I found is that they say that adults are not able to recognize a mate unless they're actually sitting on the nest. And there's certain movements that that couple will make to each other to identify the fact that they are actually their mate. So I thought that was kind of curious considering that you think most animals, you know, even though we don't necessarily recognize the differences that they would be able to, but maybe it's a little bit of a dance that they have to do in order to do that. <laughs> exactly. You, you you kind of know your, your, your person and I guess they kind of know <laughs> their, their bird mate. <laughs> yes, you got it. The nest sounds like they are perfectly situated to keep everyone safe. So I wanted to know a little bit more about who builds the nest and how they go about protecting each other and their young in the nest. As far as we can tell, it is both the male and the female that will build that nest. And so they will actually hang out together for a long time and they've got that specific spot 
So once they know where they're going, then it makes it easier. But both of them are pretty good. They both take turn incubating the eggs, which is also very nice, sharing that parenting, and then caring for the young as well. So it's not a one or the other. It's basically both for all of them. The main protection would be in that rookery with having so many other birds around there that that safety in numbers is their philosophy of protection. So they're not going to be like other ground nesting birds where they might do some kind of a, um, a fake injury to lure a predator away to protect them. It's basically that if something's coming up after them, uh, a lot, unfortunately, a lot of times they'll just fly away and, and see what happens. So no, there's not a lot of aggression or any type of behavior that we could do that just hopefully early recognition of a predator coming along. Well, Pauline, share with me a little unknown fact about the baby chicks and how they relate to each other. A little bit of serious sibling rivalry, I would say. Chicks and um, the nesting aspect of it. One thing that I found really interesting is that they said that the chicks can actually be pretty aggressive towards each other. So while the adults are very skittish, the younger chicks will actually kind of be aggressive towards their weaker siblings. And so even though they may start out with three to four eggs, they will actually sometimes kill each other. And so there may only be two that actually fledge. So it's a tough start in their world, I would say. (laughs) Really? That's interesting. Talk about sibling rivalry, right? (laughs) (laughs) You've got that right in the worst kind of way. (laughs) In the worst kind of way. Although Cumberland got the great distinction and recognition for being the home of the snowy egrets, you can find them in other places along the eastern seaboard. Polly also shares how conservation efforts have helped save the snowy egrets as well. They're actually found quite frequently all around this area, so it's not just on Cumberland Island. You will actually find them all up and down the coastal area. So um, you can find them from Virginia and further north all the way down into the Gulf area. So it's a pretty widespread area that they're found in. Uh, the nice thing is, is that since the early times, um, late 18 to early 1900s, these birds were actually on the way out because the plumes were gathered for the fashion industry. And unfortunately, they ended up killing them in order to get those plumes. Um, But because we've now restricted that and they're not utilized in that way, conservation efforts have really allowed those populations to rebound. And so they're pretty easy to see. Um, And all along the Atlantic seaboard, as well as the Gulf Coast, you can find them along any of the waterways. Cumberland is very lucky that the snowy egrets call the island home. But there is some migration with the birds. Pauline tells us a little bit about that. There is some migration. It's not an extensive one like we see with some other species. Uh, But you are basically going to see the same birds, whether you're looking along the Virginia, um, Maryland coast along area, as well as the Gulf Coast. So they're not going to be a lot of a difference in the look and the size of them. You may have a difference in the amount of down feathers that are underneath there. And as I say, they do have some migration as well, although it's not real extensive. So why So why do you think Georgia, is it just only the temperature? Is it more food that's available throughout the year? Just what makes them choose Georgia? It's because it sounds like maybe Georgia would provide a year round mm-hmm. uh, for them to, you know, to call home. Right. And anywhere along the southern seaboard, I would say, from actually uh, North Carolina down South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, 
like you said, because our climate is fairly mild here, our winters are very mild, they don't feel that need that they would have to do that extensive migration. Our temperatures very seldom get down to freezing. So being temperate, they are able to find food year round and that just allows them to stay here and to survive very well. Part of it, of course, is the location that we have. And so where we are along the Atlantic seaboard, we have a six to seven foot tidal difference. So there is a wide area that's going to be exposed at low tide. And that allows them, again, to have good habitat for hunting for food. And when the tide comes in, it brings fresh food into them. So that tidal fluctuation is one, one thing that allows them uh, to have a good variety of food. And that's always a bonus right there. Uh, part of it, again, would be because of the amount of water that comes in and out. We do have a lot of salt marsh area. Cumberland itself and along the Georgia coast in general, we have protected the salt marsh fairly well. And so as a result, that provides them a very broad area of habitat that they could survive in, not only for food sources, but also for protection. And so that's a big factor um, for any species overall. Um, on Cumberland, when you're visiting out there, you do have access with a boardwalk down near the Dungeness area. So that this goes actually along a tidal creek and that tidal creek at low tide is filled with birds that are going after the food that have been caught in some of the water puddles that are left after the tide has gone out. So again, just being in the right place at the right time allows you to see these birds fairly easily. Cumberland Island is located in a great spot for birds to call it home. But where exactly is Cumberland? Of course, it's one of the beautiful barrier islands off the coast of Georgia, but I wanted Pauline to tell us a little bit more about the island, where it's located, and what makes it so special. Cumberland is right along the southeastern point of Georgia. We are right on the state line between Florida and Georgia. And so the St. Mary's River is that border. And so that allows us to see them as we're going along the ferry route out to the island as well. But literally, we're looking across the river to Florida. So um, as far as you can go east and as far as you can go south before you hit Florida, that's where Georgia um, or Cumberland Island is. It's 18 miles from one end to the other. So that makes us the largest that we have along our 100 miles of coastline. Birds call Cumberland Island home, but... Cumberland is not just for birds, it's also for people too. So I asked Pauline to tell us a little bit about the human habitat that you will also find on the island. We do have private residents. Uh, about 5% or so of the island is still privately owned. Uh, some of them are descendants of the Carnegie family. Some of them are folks that will eventually have land that reverts to the park service and public lands. So it's kind of a combination. Most of these are ones that have been grandfathered in. So generally you're not able to purchase land out there. And the folks that are there are good caretakers of the island. They want to see that area preserved, not only for the wildlife, but for the enjoyment of the people too. While Quarter Mile's Travel is all about inspiring you to learn more about the designs on the reverse side of the U.S. Mint's quarters, we also want to inspire you to travel to these destinations and see for yourself some of the things that we have discussed on each episode. And with Cumberland Island, there's a lot to see along with the snowy egrets. And Pauline tells us all of the things we can see and do with a visit to Cumberland Island. That's one of the nice things is that Cumberland has a variety of topics that give people kind of a good smorgasbord of interest and topics that they can enjoy while they're out there. So there's several tours. 
There is a self-guided cell phone tour that can be done that talks about the history, especially around the South End area near Dungeness. And that's one that you can do at a nice casual walking tour. Uh, when staff is available, we have ranger-led tours down through the Dungeness area as well. We offer various programming uh, from seining to history walks so that uh, visitors can take advantage of that. And there's no charge for either of these. There is also a land and legacies tour, which is a six-hour six motorized tour offered by the concessionaire. And that one takes you up to the north end and back. And so you get probably the best overall view. Um, that tour is six hours, as I mentioned. So it's a long day, but you are in a 15-passenger van. And so you're able to cover most of the island fairly easily. So you have quite a, a good opportunity to see and experience the various things that are on the island. Also, too, they're the wild horses that Cumberland's known for, and I know people love to come and see and see them as well. And they're very easy to see as you're wandering around through that area. They wander through the various habitats. So if you're walking along the boardwalk in the salt marsh, you may see them in the distance. As you tour through the Dungeness area, you may see them there as well. So it is very common to see them. One thing I always tell my visitors is that you can read the books and you can say that egrets and herons are going to be most active in the early morning um, or in dusk in the evening. But unfortunately, we have that big influence of the tides. And so they don't read our books and they have to do what they do in response to what Mother Nature provides. So to be honest, it really depends on what the tide is doing as to how easy they'll see. Um, you want to be out there at low tide to see the, the birds the mist because they'll be along the mud flats and they'll really stand out. Whereas at high tide, they're going to be in that same area, but a lot of times they're hiding in the marsh grasses and you won't be able to see them. Interestingly, even though they're a pretty good sized bird and generally we're not going to be mucking down through that mud and they would be able to escape very easily. If you get close enough that they notice you, they will fly away very quickly. So you do have to be very cautious and quiet, almost stealthy as you're approaching them, uh, especially if you want to watch them, if you're trying to get a good picture at an angle. So you do want to be very wary so that they don't fly away. She did say photos, and I want some great tips so that when I'm there on Cumberland, I can catch the perfect shot of the snowy egret. These things about Cumberland is that the photography opportunities are tremendous. And being along the marsh edge, again, going along that boardwalk gives you an opportunity to get out a little bit further towards that marsh area. But most photographers know that you want the sun at your back so that you can have that lighting the animal there. And you don't want too many shadows for the most part. Um, if you can get some cloud cover, actually that makes in some cases a good shot as well because it's not such a glaring light on there. So there's a lot of different techniques that you could use, but those are the two easiest ones I would say that everybody would be able to follow. Cumberland Island is a national seashore, part of the National Park Service, with conservation laws in place. But I asked Pauline, what are some of the things that we as citizens and visitors to places need to keep in mind in terms of conservation and making sure that beautiful birds like the snowy egret will be around for a long, long time? The main thing is going to be habitat conservation. Um, we unfortunately have a lot of pressure on our wetland areas to live along them because we enjoy them so much. 
Um, in some cases in the past, they have been filled in. So there have been laws that have been passed to protect the birds and their habitat. Things like the Lacey Act, the Endangered Species Act that most people are familiar with, North American Wetlands Conservation Act. And these are all designed to protect that habitat. And that's one of the main things is for us just to be aware of what's going on in our world and making sure that we continue to protect those wetlands so that it'll also benefit us, but also these birds that live in there on a day-to-day -day basis. Well, how can we come to Cumberland? We are ready to do that. So can you tell us right. a website? And uh, you mentioned a couple of uh, touring opportunities that sound great for people wanting to get out and stretch their legs and walk or also ones where we can get in that uh, 16 passenger van as well. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. So you do have to access the island by boat. We have a ferry that goes out every day during our high season, which would be spring, summer, and fall. In winter, it goes out every day except for Tuesday and Wednesday. And the easiest way to check that schedule is either to go to our website, www.nps.gov forward slash C-U-I-S. You can also type in Cumberland Island Ferry and it will take you to the concessionaire's website. We do recommend making reservations for that. That way you can guarantee your space and you know how much time you can plan for on the island. And you can also reserve that space on the Land and Legacies Tour for the concessionaire's website. And that would be cumberlandislandferry.com. Um, we always update things on our Facebook page, just punch in Cumberland Island National Park Service and our Facebook page will pop up there. We also have camping opportunities. So if you're a little bit more adventurous and you want to spend more than just a couple hours on the island, that's an opportunity. You will want to make a reservation for that and they can be done up to six months in advance. And that would be at recreation.gov. It is all tent camping. You pack everything in, pack everything out, but people come back year after year and absolutely love those opportunities. So there's a lot of different ways to explore the island, but you just have to do a little bit of pre-planning. You know, and Pauline, I like that you mentioned too about pack everything in and pack everything out, uh, putting an underline on, on, on that, because that's another way of conservation as well, is making yes. sure that we don't leave anything but, you know, those nice footprints behind and be even careful with those footprints. <laughs> yes, indeed, you are correct. Um, but yes, I, I'm glad that you that you mentioned that. And and everything out means everything. So no mm -hmm. um uh, trash behind or things like that, even something that you think might be just small. Our national park system has many designations that fall under it, and Cumberland is a national seashore. So I asked Pauline to make sure that she let us know before she goes exactly what a seashore is and how that falls under the National Park Service. So we are designated as a national seashore, which fits under the umbrella of national parks. So a lot of folks don't recognize the fact that we are essentially the same thing as a national park. It's just given a slightly different designation since we are along the coastal area, but we fit under that same umbrella. And so things like national park passes that people have been issued all apply to help with the entrance fees too. So yeah, we do want to recognize that we are essentially within that park service as a national park too. Quite an honor to be selected to be featured as one of the U.S. Mint's commemorative quarters. I asked Pauline to tell us about the process and just the whole experience of being selected. We were very excited when we were chosen to represent the Park Service for Georgia on our uh, NPS quarters. And so we went through a, a big process to try to decide what our design would be. And 
you know, there was many opportunities and options to choose from because it is such a varied place out through there. We've got a lot of history as well as natural areas to represent. And so when we chose things like the salt marsh and the snowy egret, I think that was a good representation of the island in the sense that you have the wildlife and you have these very special places that are significant to us. And one of the really cool things is that we got to celebrate it for a full year. We did have an unveiling at the high school and there are people that travel around specifically for those unveilings. And so it was a big to do um, to see this first design and these first releases of these quarters. And then it's been really neat to have people come through. We still have the stamp that's here available for the passport books. And people are surprised to learn that the reason that we have that stamp is because it is on the quarter. And so even though it's kind of gone past that time since 2018, when it was revealed, at the same time, we still have that same connection because these quarters are still in circulation. And we're still talking about the fact that these birds are still here and that we have that connection and it connects us, I think, with the bigger picture of the park service and the country at the same time. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. And, you know, what's interesting for me with doing this podcast that I'm basing on the quarters is that so many people come back to me and say it's so educational and that their their kids are using it for information, for writing papers and things like that. So mm-hmm. I yeah, I'm really enjoying learning more about it and then being able to share it, you know, with other people because find inspiration in things that you don't necessarily expect to find inspiration. In. Yes, like a you are correct. <laughs> so it's great that quarters are uh, are able to introduce us to so many wonderful places and things around the you know, around the U.S. because the U.S. has has a lot of beautiful places. And yes, it does. And that's a great way, like you said, to introduce folks to those places. Absolutely, absolutely. Quartermouse Travel is all about inspiring you to find those quarters and flip them over and see what the design is on the back so that you will plan a trip to visit some of these places. As we wrap up our conversation, Pauline shares some very inspiring thoughts about visiting a place that is so pristine with so much nature for you to explore, like Cumberland Island. Here's what she had to say to look for places like Cumberland Island for your next getaway. Whenever you are seeing these egrets or herons as well, a lot of times they're hanging out in the same general area. The neat thing is, is that you also get to experience the island in a very peaceful way. If there's a lot of noise around, a lot of distractions, these birds are not going to stick around. So one thing to consider for a lot of people is that when you're exploring an area and you're looking for these types of birds, you've got a great experience where you can kind of join Mother Nature on a one-to-one basis, but really experience that peacefulness that you would get in a world that's in some cases really, really busy. And so I think that's one of the best things, whether it's dawn, whether it's dusk in the middle of the day, you still get to experience that no matter where you are. So that's one of the really, I think, cool personal gifts that these birds can give to us is that opportunity to experience it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Quarter Mouse Travel, all about Cumberland Island and the snowy egret. Plan a visit to see those snowy white egrets in person at nps.gov forward slash C-U-I-S. Also visit the website cumberlandislandferry.com to start planning your trip 
to Cumberland Island, one of the Georgia Barrier Islands. Quartermouth Strapper would like to thank the following people, Pauline Wentworth and Jill Hamilton with the National Park Service, Cumberland Island National Seashore. For more information about the U.S. Mint Commemorative and State Quarters, visit their website, usmint.gov. This episode is brought to you by Allianz Travel Insurance. They're your travel buddy for trips near and far. Find the option that best fits your next getaway at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. And make sure you hit that subscribe button so that you'll get all of the next updates and you'll be ready to reach in your pocket, pull out that quarter, flip it over, and Quarter Mouse Travel will take it from there. We'll help you turn that quarter into an adventure.